Father, we do eagerly look forward to that day that we will be with you. And so we meet here this morning as a taste, a foretaste of that reality, the day that we will stand before you and for all of eternity worship you. We need to remember these things. We must remember that the life that you've given us here is real and it's true and you walk with us and yet there is more to come. We must keep our eyes focused on that future day before you that we will stand. Father, we're grateful that you have set apart this day, this one day in seven, that we can come and, and to meet together, to sing and to worship you, to give of our lives, to, to gather together and to rub shoulders with each other and to encourage each other to walk with you. Thanks for your word that you have given to us to speak to us. We must hear from it. We must be reminded in what you have to say. We're grateful for your spirit that indwells us, that brings to remembrance these truths and illuminates them for us and works against all those things that on the outside and the inside that would keep us from hearing from you. And so this morning we ask that these things would take place, that as we leave this place this morning, we would have a better understanding, a better picture of our Father in heaven. Hallowed be his name and his kingdom coming and what that would look like here on earth. Enable us to do that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, you can open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I, I might also bring a quick update uh, from Bill. Uh, had lunch. Dave Upchurch and I had lunch with him on, on uh, Friday. We went and we grabbed some uh, sandwiches and took him over and was able to sit and talk with him for a while and, and eat. And he shared some of his chocolate with us. He's got lots of it. And uh, he's doing, he's doing well. He's continuing to recover. And, and uh, as you know, Bill, he is uh, very, very eager <laughs> to get back here and to be uh, with all of you. Uh, there's a good chance that this Wednesday he'll be able to come and join us for the, the social. So uh, uh, I use that as a, also a promo, a shameless promotion to, to come and be a part of that. So, but it, there's a good chance he'll be joining us as well. But continue to pray for him. He, as a man who has not uh, uh, been slowed down a whole lot in his ministry, it's, it's hard and, and probably good uh, to slow down, but uh, pray that God would continue to, to minister to him, and we're grateful that, that he will. You open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read again uh, th from verse 1, and we're going to look at the last uh, couple verses of the section up through 17, and again, continuing to focus and, and to talk about what it means that, uh, that we're adopted by God. Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind, minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, and indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is really kind of the same song, verse 2, from last week as we began to talk about the really the centrality of this doctrine of adoptions. We understand what's really true of this fact that we are adopted as God's children that were his. And we need to use it as this central lens, if you will, of the Christian life. And as we do, we understand the fulfillment, all that God has done for us. We need to understand as well what he has done, the extent to which he has gone to save us. And indeed, we sing and we talk about his justification and Christ's death on the cross and the forgiveness that's provided for us. And And the understanding that the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ and that we receive his mercy and this understanding as well as our redemption, that we've been purchased from the slave market of sin and purchased so that we can then be brought to this idea of the sonship, that we brought into relationship with God, not as judge, but as a father, as we come towards him. And that, so this is the central thesis of Paul's text here as we look. And as I've talked about before, that this, this chapter is really about building confidence in the believer. It's about encouraging us to know what's true and to understand our u- union with Christ. And that what that looks like is that the Spirit indwells us and reminds us of what's true. And then we have this great confidence and security, not because of what we have done, but because what God has done. And as we view the Christian life through this lens of adoption, as Paul gets to it, we understand it more rightly. We understand, as in verse 12, that we're debtors. We owe God everything, and it's a beautiful payment that we get to make for the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity to pay him back, which we will never do. But it's the blessing that we have to be able to say thank you to our Father and what he has done for us. As well, we understand that the the Spirit leads those who are the sons of God, and and the Spirit leads us from bondage and from Slavery leads us into freedom. And our adoption is anticipated. This idea is anticipated in the Old Testament. Um, it was, it's not a new idea, as Paul introduces it, although in the Old Testament it's more in seed form. It's more there as an anticipation, although it's something that's so great that you can't hardly imagine that Yahweh, the Creator God, would make His creation His children. But that indeed what is what Christ teaches. And as Christ comes, he ushers in this fuller understanding of all that God is doing in his work of salvation. He is saving us unto adoption. He is making us children. And so this is the work of God from beginning to end, from Old Testament into, do, into new. And thus this language of Abba, Father, this intimacy that we have with the Father. 
And so this morning what I'm going to look at is a couple aspects of our adoption. One, I want to ask the question, what's completed? What is complete and what is it that we live out of? And then secondly, what is not yet complete that we live anticipation of, in anticipation of? There are some things that are already fulfilled and complete, and there are some things that are not yet complete in our adoption. Yesterday, the last couple of days, my daughters have been making cookies, and uh, they were selling them at our um, garage sale that we had yesterday. Unfortunately, the rain kind of dampened their profits, but they did make some money. And in making those cookies, if you're like, like me, um, I enjoy to dip into the dough uh, they, they were making, they're called monster cookies, and so they had chocolate chips and M&Ms and all those things. They're just really good, and the dough is exceptionally good. And so I would dip into the dough, and some of you are going, no, you shouldn't do that because there's eggs, and I know that, but it was, you know, it was, it was fresh. Anyway, <laughs> so we'd have some of the dough, and what's the dough, right? You have some of that. It's a foretaste of the cookie that's to come. It's the, it's already, but it's not yet, Right? It's already part of the cookie and all the, all the elements and the ingredients are in that dough, and yet it's not yet fully a cookie. So it's already there, but it's not complete. And if you allow me to use that as an analogy, a, a rough one maybe, that's like our adoption. There are some things that are complete that's there, and yet it's not fulfilled. It's not fully baked. And so we wait for that fulfillment, and we look forward. And so... In one respect, I want to talk about what's complete, in what way is our adoption complete and realized, in what way is it not realized? And as you look at Paul in this passage, there's, there's really a couple things we're going to look at that's already completed that we understand. And, and, and the first is this idea of sonship. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you've received the spirit of adoption or the spirit of what it means to be a child of God. And if you remember last week, I used this kind of as a, as a baseline of what adoption is. It signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not naturally belong. And so it's the full rights and privilege of being a part of a family in a family that we don't naturally belong. And so with Paul here, there's a contrast that he sets up between the spirit of slavery and the spirit of sonship. He says, we have not been given the spirit of slavery, we've been given the spirit of sonship. He says, by faith, we live in that reality. We live in what's true, that we are sons of God, no longer slaves. Now, what's interesting about what what he is calling us to do is to live as we live now in the reality of what's true, What's necessary is that we need faith. Faith has a present orientation. Faith enables us to to see what our eyes don't normally see and to live in light of it as true, whether or not we can see it. Faith enables us to live in the present reality that we are children of God, whether it's visible at the given time or not. And the reality that Paul says is that we are children of God, that we are no longer slaves. And the question I ask is, in what way would we continue to be slaves? And what kinds of things would continue to enslave us as those who follow Christ? In what way might we still have a slave mindset as believers? Now, we know that the penalty of sin is broken and the bondage of sin is broken for us as believers as we walk. However, sin, sin still has an effect on our lives. And so there's a degree to which sin can influence us. And a part of living in faith is believing and knowing what God has already done for us in terms of freeing us from that. But there's another way in which we as believers might have a tendency to have this slave kind of mindset. 
And it has to do with our works. And it has to do with self-effort and the way that we live out our faith and our salvation. And I know that over the course of my life as I've walked with God, there's this constant tendency for me to understand and to know that I've been saved by grace. And that all those things have been accomplished. And yet, somehow on a day in and day out basis, I think that somehow it's up to me to maintain my relationship with God on my own effort. That somehow it's up to me completely to continue that salvation process or to transform myself. And so I can fall into this kind of slave mentality of self-effort or performance that somehow my job now is to prove to God that I'm worthy of him having saved me. That my job on an ongoing basis is now to work harder and to perform for him. And for Paul, this is nothing more than just a self-effort. This is a slavery that we can fall back into because it leads to fear. It leads to fear that we will never do enough to continue to prove to God that somehow we're worth what he has done, as opposed to resting in the reality of our sonship, as opposed to resting in the reality of what he has already done completely for our salvation. And he says, no longer can you do anything to contribute to it. You can't add anything to what I've already done. And so he says, don't fall back into this mindset of slavery, because it will never be enough. The works that you try to do, the self-effort that you give, is not sufficient, and you will never be satisfied. Indeed, it leads to a kind of performance mindset that I'm performing for God, and indeed, I'm performing for everyone else. And there's no rest in that kind of lifestyle. And instead of resting, we are constantly working and performing and wondering, is it enough? As opposed to resting as a child of God. There's a constant fear of failure that comes with living in this mindset, because we're always afraid of failing. We're afraid that, that, that I, I will not live up to what God has called me to do. And then I'm also afraid of what other people will think. So I live enslaved to what others think and how they see me. And so what's that do? It leads to a kind of performance that I want to look a kind of way. I want to dress a kind of way. I want to talk in a certain kind of way. So others will think well of me because somehow that, that breeds and it fits into the way, this slavery, this, this mindset that's there. I want the approval of others. And so you see the cycle that we can fall into as believers. And Paul says, we have not been given this spirit of slavery, of self-effort, of works, of performance, but rather a spirit of adoption, a spirit of sonship in which God is fully satisfied that brings a kind of freedom to live before him, to be who we are as children of God, that he is satisfied. He, what he has done and is doing in our lives is sufficient, that he is pleased with us. And so it brings a kind of rest that we can rest in God our Father. We don't have to worry that somehow he's going to see something in us that he hasn't seen before and therefore realize, go, oh, I didn't realize this was there. I didn't realize you were this bad. And somehow disown us. We don't have to worry. We don't have to concern ourselves with that. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His love is unconditional. And we don't have to worry about what everybody else thinks. We have one person that we have to be concerned with. And he has given his son for us. We have one debt to pay. We have one audience to live for. We have one person to honor and one to worship. And as we understand and live out of that reality, we don't have to be concerned about what everybody else thinks about us because that is slavery. And so we can entrust ourselves to God as our father. We don't have to live under the slavery of trying to do it and work it out ourselves because the beauty of this is there's nothing I can do to make him love me any more or make, me love, make him love me any less. I can't change that reality. 
because I'm his son and he's done everything. And so what Paul says, this reality that we live in and by faith we apprehend it is that we are children of God. We have received the spirit of adoption. And then he goes on to describe the nature of our relationship that is real here and now. It is real that we have an intimacy with the Father and that the Father has given us the Spirit as a witness to our spirit to, to give us a kind of confidence. And you see the language that's there. He says, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Gives us a picture of this kind of relationship that we have, that we cry out, Abba, Father. It's been said that we are more passionate than rational. And I believe that to be true. That no matter what our personality or temperament might be like, there might be a different expressiveness of that reality. But we are made as relational beings. We're made to have a relationship with God. And you see it as Paul says that our spirit, we cry to our Father. We're made to be in a relationship with God as Father and to come to Him. And of course the language there, Abba, Father, is, are the words, of course, from Jesus. Abba is that term, that Aramaic term, which we can best translate it as, as daddy. It's that affectionate term of the home, of a father is approaching him on those terms. The same words that Christ taught his followers to use in, in addressing God as father. It's not the language of a servant. It's not the language of a slave. It is the language of a son. If we understand who God is and we address him as Abba Father. It's the language of the home. It's not the language of the of the courtroom or the marketplace. It's a language of the home, the family room, to be able to be with him. And so Paul says, this is the nature of our relationship. There's an intimacy we have. And it's the spirit indeed who enables us to cry out a father. It's the spirit who enables us to approach him and even say these words and to mean them. The witness of the spirit enables us in and through prayer to approach God in this way, to cry out to him as Abba Father. To recognize him not just as judge, but as our God, and certainly as, as king, but as our father. Many have looked at this, this phrase, Abba, Father, as the witness of the Spirit. As we ask the question, what's the witness of the Spirit to our spirit in the next verse? Many look at this and say the very fact that we would respond to God in this way, that's evidence of the witness of God's Spirit in us. So even as we cry out, it's not a formula, Abba, Father, it is a name, it's how we understand him to be, that we come to him as our father, we see him as our father, we desire him to be our father, that as we do that, that is the witness, that's the evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives, that he would enable us to come and to approach God on these terms and to approach him as God. And yet the witness of the Spirit in verse 17, as it says, the, as the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, many have tried to kind of understand, what does that mean? What does it mean the Spirit witnesses with our spirit? And there's a variety of different ways that that has been understood. But the point of it is, the point is that it brings a kind of confidence. It's not mere just emotionalism. We don't just feel the Spirit in the same way we feel happiness or sorrow. But there's a confidence that the presence of the Spirit has and gives us in our lives. It's a confidence that we have as we stand before God, as we see who we are in all of our sinfulness and all of our brokenness and all of our undeservedness, that there's a confidence that we have. And as a friend of mine, there's a phrase that he uses. He says, it's one of those you just know that you know. There's a deep-seated reality that I am God's. And it's evidenced in prayer. It's evidenced as I come to be before him, as I approach him as my father. 
I know that he's my God and I desire him. And the desire for him might not always be as strong, but the desire for the desire is always there. It's always baseline. I know that I'm his. And there's times that it's more strong and times that it's less strong, but it is always present. And this is the witness. This is the reality of the spirit in our lives. And it's experience as we come to him in prayer and certainly addressing him as father is a picture of that. But the witness is not always the same in the same forms and intensities. We can't expect it always to be exactly the same. Oftentimes, younger, when we're younger in our faith, there's this kind of sensation and the reality that we're gods. And yet as we grow, there's, there's seasons of dryness where we go, wow, is this really true? What I felt before, is that still as true as it was before? Because now it doesn't seem to be the case. So the intensity is not always the same in our lives throughout our lives. And that's because God's purposes change. And they have changed regarding us and regarding what we need. At the same time, it's not the same as everybody else's. You might be in relationship with others who just have this strong sense of that. And you go, I don't have the same kind of sense. Well, that's okay. That's what God's doing in their lives, not in yours. And so there is, there is a constant shift, but yet it's nonetheless, it's there and it's real. And it's experience as we come before him. And so what is real in the here and now before the Father is that we have an intimate relationship with him in which the Spirit witnesses and, and, and testifies and tells us what's true about him and lays this baseline kind of confidence that we walk in day in and day out. No matter what it might seem, we know this is true because he is there. However, the intimacy with the Father, we must not mistake, though, he is our Father we don't want to forget that he's still king and Lord of all the earth. We approach him as father and we don't have to fear what he might do to us in any kind of destructive way any longer because he is at work in our lives for our own good. But we approach him as our father who art in heaven, one who is not like us, our father who is building his kingdom here. Our father is holy and so we approach him in this intimate kind of reverence for him. And so we understand that this is true as well. And so what's true of us here now, what's complete is that we are, we've given the spirit of adoption. We are sons, no longer slaves. We understand that there's this intimacy and confidence as well. There's a security that we have. It's an, a, a security of being the, a child of the king. And Paul goes on, as he says in verse 17, and if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ that we are heirs of God. We have an inheritance. And the inheritance is tied to everything that's God's, which is everything. And that gives us a great kind of security. But I think what's important here is not necessarily to notice exactly what does God own. He owns everything, therefore have all that at our disposal. But the language of, of Paul gives us a hint at what our inheritance really is. It's not all that God owns, it's all that God is. Verse 17, he says that we are heirs of what? We are heirs of God. We get him. We don't just get all that he has. We get all that he is as our father, that we inherit him as our father. We inherit all of his power and all that he is. And so we understand that if the spirit is a pledge of what's to come, the spirit comes and dwells as a reminder of the full payment that's coming, that indeed our inheritance, which is the full payment, is God himself. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says this, he writes, And without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And I ask the question, 
With what does God reward those who seek him? What does he reward them with? He rewards them with himself. And so we understand that our inheritance, our security is found in in getting God and and getting him. And so all these things are realized. All these things are already we have in our relationship with God in the here and now. Yet the question is, what is not yet complete in the passage? As you read on, you see there is a not yetness to this passage. There are, there's the cookie dough, but the cookies aren't fully baked yet. There's a reality that is coming in the fullness of our adoption, in the full rights and privileges of our sonship that's there. And if faith enables us to live now in the present in light of what's true, it's hope that enables us to live in light of the future now in the challenges of now. It enables us to live now in light of what will be. It enables us to grab hold of the not yet and to live in light of it. It's not living for the future or living in the future. It's saying this is what God will do and that informs how I live today. Because today isn't all there is. There is a not yet. And so I look forward to that. So hope has a future orientation if faith has a present orientation. And all of these things, as we look forward, remind us that there's something more to come. Like the cookie dough reminds us that there's, there's something more. There's the cookie. I'm done with that analogy, just in case you know. <laughs> I think I just ended <laughs> of that. So it enables us to look forward. What is it that we are, what is it that reminds us that there's something more? Well, first of all, the spirit of adoption reminds us that there's something more. The fulfillment of that adoption, the spirit is the pledge So we understand there's a fulfillment of that, and that's God himself. Secondly, the witness of the Spirit is witnessing to something else. The witness of God's Spirit is telling us this is true in the meantime, in the interim period of time, as we wait for the completion of that. So he reminds us of what's true in the future that we are going to experience. Thirdly, in verse 17, Paul introduces one. If you're reading through this, it seems kind of abrupt. He introduces suffering. He says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And then out of the blue, he says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I think it's a rude introduction. All of a sudden he says, provided that we suffer with him. And so there's a part of suffering that is, is the already not yet that we understand that suffering is a reminder of, and confirmation of what's true. It's, suffering is characterized by the already, but it anticipates the not yet. It, we, we know that it's here and now, but it anticipates a day when there will be no suffering. And we follow the same path that Christ followed, from suffering to glory. Those who are un, uh, in union with Christ or united with him follow the same path, from suffering, which is characteristic of the world in which we live. And I must say that suffering is a part of the providential effects of the fall. It's a part of what God is doing in our lives. It's a part of the work in Christ, even in a bizarre kind of way, as the author of Hebrews tells us, that we're to prepare him for his sacrifice. And so suffering is connected and is a part of the way that we live. But it reminds us of what's to come, a day where there will be no suffering. So that's also characteristic of the already, not yet. But if you'll jump with me to verse 23, In between there, Paul is talking about the creation groaning and the suffering as it relates to all of creation and really the the overarching uh, plans and intentions of God in all creation. And the next time I preach, we'll look more specifically at that. But in verse 23, Paul jumps back to 
us as he relates again to this topic of adoption. He says, and not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And the first phrase here in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. He says that we presently who have the first fruits of the spirit groan. And that's a a powerful word. It expresses discontent. It expresses a kind of holy discontent that something's not quite right, that we're anticipating and waiting for. Indeed, that whole passage that I read has three different reference points. It has the past. It says we were saved, period. We've been saved. In the present, we groan and wait for the future reality of our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And if we have the first fruit of the Spirit, which is a picture of this pledge anticipating the full harvest or a foretaste of the full harvest that's to come and the Spirit dwelling in us, approaching and waiting God in His fullness, the Spirit's presence and dwelling in us is both an encouragement and a reminder of the incompleteness of our status. So the Spirit's presence in us reminds us that that God is with us, but it also is a reminder of the incompleteness of it yet, that he is pointing towards the day that we will be with Christ. It's like, if you will, many or some of you have been away from your spouses for a period of time, some longer than others. It's like what a wedding ring does. It's a reminder of what's true of your relationship with your spouse. And it's great encouragement to go, there's somebody waiting, there's somebody there And at the very same time, it's a reminder of the incompleteness that you're still apart. And so you have the mixture there of joy and encouragement with sorrow and pain and a longing to be together for something to be complete. And so we understand, as Paul says, we groan waiting. And the Spirit is is a pledge, as a first fruits for us, is a reminder of that. Both the good as well as what we're waiting for and what God is doing. And it reminds us as well that groaning is a part of the Christian life. And as John Stott has said, some Christians grin too much and groan too little. Some grin too much. And what he means by that is we don't have a place in our theology for pain, for suffering. Now, it's true. The opposite of that is true, right? That some groan too much and grin too little. Both of those are true. However, what we need to understand is that there's a place for longing. There's a place for that unfulfilled in our lives, anticipating what God will do. And he says, Paul goes on to say that we're waiting for our adoption. Now, the question is, we've received the spirit of adoption. What are we waiting for? Of course, the fulfillment. And to take an example of modern day adoption, there is always a gap, right? Between the finalization, the authorization of an adoption when it's complete in the fulfillment, in the full realization of that adoption. There's always a gap between the two. In the middle, there's a waiting period for that process to take place. We live in that gap. We live in the gap between what's sure and certain and authorized, finalized, but not completely finished. We live in that reality. Our adoption is sure and certain as it can be, and yet it's not fully realized. And so we groan and we wait and we long for that to be realized. Today, um, oftentimes, and this is where I'm, I mean, things get a little bit close to home for me. Some of you know that Kelly and I are in the process of adopting a little girl from Ethiopia. But um, many, many people in adoptive situations will bring a photo book, and they will, they will give a photo book through a, you know, a liaison to, to give to that child. 
And the reason so close is we just got to see a video of our little girl getting our, our, our photo book in the last couple of days. So this is a little close, but here's a picture. This little girl gets a photo book. And the photo book, of course, is a picture of her family that she's going to get. I knew this would be hard. Um, it's a picture of the reality that she is anticipating. It's a picture of her family. And I've been told that these children, and you can imagine, that they treasure these books in the interim period. While they're waiting for the completion of it, they, they sleep with them, and they, they get tattered and worn. But they, but they treasure them. And you can imagine why, right? Because this is a picture of what's to come, and it reminds them of what's true. Although it's not yet true, it will be true. And so it carries with them both the mixture of joy and encouragement along with the mixture of longing and waiting and anticipating for the fulfillment of that. What a great picture for us that God has given to us, that he has communicated to us. He said, I've given to you, if you will, a picture of who I am in the waiting as we wait for what I will do in a complete. And that picture of the photo book for us is his scripture and it's each other and it's the spirit living in us. In the scriptures, we have a picture of our Father. We have a picture not just of a, not just a, a bunch of do's and don'ts, not just, you know, live this way and you'll be happy. It's a picture of our Father and what he has done to save us. We have a picture of all the, the extent to which he has gone to make us his, a picture of our rebellious nature. And he says, I have made you mine. And we have a picture of our family, our brothers and sisters, warts and all, he says, this is who we are, a part of the family of God. And he says, I've given you my spirit to remind you of what's true. And he said, if that weren't enough, I've given you a great mission. As you have this photo book, you carry it around and you share others. You tell others about your father. And you tell them the message that he is adopting children. Would you like to have him as your father? And so this is a picture for us of what he's doing. This is already, and yet it's not yet, and we anticipate what he will do. All these enable us to live in the here and now, which is oriented by the future reality. We must not forget that all that we have now is not all that we will. Already in the not yet. The conclusion of his adoption is our highest privilege, our richest blessing. We have in it realized Reality, if I can say that. We, we live now in the reality of not being slaves, but being, ser but being sons of God in freedom. We live in the intimacy with the Father, a deep reality of his presence with us. And we have a security as God is our Father that's there. And yet we live in the not yet. We anticipate the full adoption. We anticipate the day we will come home and we will be with him. So we long and we wait eagerly for that to take place. The gospel is a song. It's a great, it's a song that we sing and that we live and infects and informs our whole life. Jack Miller, the, the one who started World Harvest Mission, has this picture, and I think it's a wonderful one I want to conclude with. It says that if justification are the lyrics of the gospel, that adoption is the music of the gospel. If justification and all that God has done is the content and it's the lyrics is what we sing the music behind the gospel is our sonship. It's the fact that he has adopted us. And many people, many of us know the lyrics, 
but our goal and our desire is to know that the music as well. To understand the content of the gospel as well as the music that accompanies it. And to know that is to truly understand the gospel. It's to be captured by both the lyrics and the music. To understand that God's ultimate intentions in his adoption was to bring, in our adoption, was to bring glory to himself. And then also to understand the extreme measures to which he has gone to save us and make us his. And so a part of knowing the gospel is both the lyrics and the music, our adoption as well as all that's gone into that. And I don't know if, if that makes sense, if we get it, but if you're here today and you go, you know, I don't think I understand what you mean by the song of the gospel, by the lyrics or the message of adoption, or there's some question as to what it means to have a relationship with God as Father, um, well, we'd love to be a part of, of helping you understand that. And so if you have questions, I'd love to interact with you. We have elders that wait in between services. would love to talk with you about that. So we'd encourage you to continue to process on that so we understand what's true already of us and not yet. I'm going to conclude. If you'll, in your worship bulletins, in the very back page, there's some reflection questions for us to consider. These come from J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And the goal of reading these questions for us is just to reflect and to think about where we are in this process. It's not to make us feel guilty that somehow we have to get this, but to go to God and say, help, help me understand. Help us understand the gospel and our adoption more fully. I'm going to read through these. Do I understand my adoption? Do I value it? Do I daily remind myself of my privilege as a child of God? Have I sought full assurance of my adoption? Do I daily dwell on the love of God to me? Do I treat God as my Father in heaven, loving, honoring, obeying Him, seeking and welcoming His fellowship, and trying in everything to please Him as a human parent would want, to do, want His child to do? Have I learned to hate the things that displease my Father? Am I sensitive to the things, the evil things to which He is sensitive? Do I make a point of avoiding them lest I grieve Him? Do I look forward daily to the great family occasion when the children of God will finally gather in heaven before the throne of God, their father and of the lamb, their brother and our Lord? Have I felt the thrill of this hope? Do I love my Christian brothers and sisters with whom I live day by day in a way that I shall not be ashamed of when in heaven I think back over it? Am I proud of my father and his family to which by his grace I belong? Does the family likeness appear in me? If not, why? Let me pray. Father, we can't make this happen. We don't trump this up, but we long to understand in an ongoing kind of way the, the richness of what you've done for us. Father, would our lives then more resemble and reflect you? Would you do that in each of our lives? Would you deepen us in an understanding? Would you help us to walk as those who are your children? Even as we walk day in and day out, I recognize each of us, it's so easy to forget what's really true of us. But would you continue to instill this in us? Affect the way we think and the way we live and the way we talk. Indeed, all of our lives. Thanks that you are our Father. And we look to you for all that we need even to live as children that would honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, I will trust in our faithful father. 
And it's hard to say. I will trust in our faithful Father. Hallelujah. I receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, I will trust in our faithful Father. Hallelujah.